This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of self investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show. We're going to get to Professor Siegel's commentary. We had the jobs report. We've got robust markets. Professor, how are you looking at things? Uh, yeah, so uh, let's go through some of the important things. Uh, employment probably was a little on the weak side, a little you know, uh, payroll a little below estimate. Unemployment actually continued to move down, though, six, seven. As, as I've said for months, everything, all these reports are rear-view mirror, and to understand the markets, you've got to go into a, a forward mirror. Um, and, uh, again, we're going to a dark tunnel now, but the light at the other end is getting brighter and brighter in terms of, uh, you know, that the vaccine rollouts. Uh, in addition, we have had movement, we've been talking about this for several weeks, positive in the direction of uh, a uh, skinny stimulus bill. Um, uh, I, I would say it's definitely over a 50-50 chance now that something will be done. This is a big positive uh, for the market. Uh, we'll get, we would get through without it, but um, you know, more stimulus there, more money there, just keeps the fire going uh, once uh, the vaccine comes and people uh, return um, to normal. That's a, a very, very positive uh, aspect. Um, on the political uh, front, well, we had Chris Waller uh, confirmed by the, the Fed. As, as you know, Judy Skelton is, is, is really not going to get confirmed. Um, Chris Waller is very qualified. I was really disappointed. It was right along party lines. I mean, Almost all Democrats voted against him. Uh, he's a very qualified person. Uh, it's not just the Republicans who vote against Democrats. Democrats vote against the Republicans. He, I am very glad he has been uh, confirmed now for a uh, position at, uh, at the board. Biden will have another confirmation uh, for that he will make uh, during um, uh, the early stage of his presidency. Uh, we also have a little bit, maybe of a closer race in the Senate. It's four and a half weeks away. It's very important. As we know, there have been some polls that have just come out um, that are um, more favorable for the Democrats, actually show the Democrats leading in both of those races, but it's still four and a half weeks away. There's a tremendous amount of politics going on. 
there are Trump lawyers telling people not to vote because it's rigged, which, of course, would be a disaster for the Republicans. I think the Republicans will get their act together and push that vote through, and we will have at least one of those two, if not both of those, to be Republican and a Republican Senate. But that's not something that's in the bag. It is something clearly that we are watching over the next four weeks. Markets are, of course, um, uh, looking towards the vaccine as they should uh, the reopening trade next year. Uh, we've had strength across the board everywhere uh, in the tech stocks as well as the, re the reopening stocks. We have the yields uh, now 97 basis points uh, on the, the ready to break 1%, I believe, uh, on the 10-year, um, which is still unbelievably low, but but it shows you the pressure on yield. As you know, I'm on record as saying we will never see uh, rates as low again on the long term as we did in the middle of, of uh, this year, uh, and that rates will continue to rise through uh, 2021. Uh, and, uh, and um, uh, you know, there's so many other things to talk about, but I, I think um, those are the highlights. Uh, anything on your mind, Jeremy? Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of rotation, you know, since the vaccine. You're seeing some of that continue into this week. You got energy popping higher, maybe going with rates, maybe some of the fiscal stimulus. How much do you think is just mean reversion? How much is sort of actually real real news here? Yeah, I see Brent at 49 and West Texas at 46. I, uh, there wasn't, I think, an OPEC deal that was signed, but it's mostly reopening. I mean, that is getting it up. I mean, I was surprised it's as high as almost 50 um, and we'll see if it stays there, but that clearly is is a value stock play since energies are deep, 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 deep value to say the least, uh, with dividend yields of eight to ten percent. Um, uh, 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 but I, I'm I'm more looking towards you know many of the other stocks that uh, will benefit from a stronger economy. One should also point out, by the way, if the Dems still do win the two, we will have a bigger infrastructure bill. Uh, we will have higher taxes, but bigger infrastructure and more spending. Um, I still think the market goes up, although it'll take a little bit of a spill in that case. Anyways, we will continue to update uh, uh, behind the markets uh, over the next four weeks looking uh, at this uh, Senate race. Yeah, very good. I think this is a great way to, to kick off our show. Thanks for some commentary, Professor. Thank you. Let me turn over the conversation. We have a welcome back. One of our, our uh, regular guests, uh, Mark Chandler, who's Managing Director, Chief Market Strategist at Bannockburn Global Forex. Mark, Mark, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Give us your current outlook as you think about the economy, as you think about all the global markets. You focus a lot on the currencies. How are you looking at the world today, Mark? Well, maybe the first thing, the first place to begin uh, for me would be the dollar which has just, uh, uh, you know, we, uh, it's basically just fallen out of bed, not just against the euro or, uh, uh, you know, one or two currencies, but the, the loss, the dollar's decline has been broad-based, including all the majors and most of the emerging market currencies. And so, you know, I think last time we were speaking, uh, Jeremy, I had laid out a view of the dollar that this was the end of the third big dollar cycle advance. Uh, since the end of Bretton Woods, the uh, Reagan dollar rally, the Clinton dollar rally, and now this Obama-Trump dollar rally. And I was thinking it came to an end, but I didn't think that it would have accelerated like this. Uh, and I, and I, I, I try to frame, well, what's the, what, how are we going to explain this down leg of the dollar? And I think that what's coming clear is that 
and I listen to what our clients are saying and what people in the market are talking about, it can be like uh, summed up in two words, twin deficit. And the, like most of our uh, most of other countries in the world, the U.S. has a budget deficit, but unlike many, especially the large countries like the Eurozone and China and Japan, the U.S. has its current account deficit. And typically, the U.S. needs to have growth differentials or rate differentials to fund these deficits. And uh, we, we can't have those now. And I think the dollar is sort of acting like this uh, shock absorber. So the real economy doesn't doesn't as much. It can take some of the pressure off. And so uh, uh, to me, that's, that's the key. Uh, that is, uh, when I look around the global asset markets, a uh, weaker dollar is also consistent then with stronger world growth, higher commodity prices. And uh, the, basically, it's part of this uh, broader reflation story. Now, when you, when you think about how how you know on on the other side of every trade on currencies here, there's another currency that you know when you're, you're, you're when you're short the dollar, you got to be long something else. Is it when you think about who you'd want to be most long against the dollar? Is it is it things like the euro? Is it developed currencies? Is it emerging markets? How are you thinking about just the rotation there? Yeah, I know that's, that's an interesting point. I was I was on a panel with uh, at uh, bank credit analysts about a month ago with uh, Stephen Roach very important economist and uh, used to run, I think, Morgan Stanley's Asia uh, Pacific area. And uh, we had a poll of the audience. And uh, they, uh, like uh, Mr. Roach, Professor Roach, picked the euro. And Roach is on record for thinking that the euro is going to appreciate 35% next year. Hmm. I I tried to make a case for China uh, in the sense that I I think that the uh, we're we're sort of in the midst of I call it like the internationalization of the RMB 2.0. The first one was uh, really about trade and about the uh, sort of the Sinofication of Hong Kong. But this other one, uh, this one that we're in the middle of now, is really about China's capital markets being integrated in the, into the global capital markets and through the benchmarks and the uh, path of investment. And Chinese fundamentals, I mean, we talk about how low yields are around the world. Uh, Professor Siegel was talking about how ours is still below, uh, our tenure is still below 1%. Japan, uh, China, rather, is offering over 3% on their 10-year bond. And they've got one of the few economies in the G20 they're going to grow this year. And it looks like the, uh, uh, most, most of the, um, uh, like, say, multilaterals are forecasting even an acceleration of Chinese growth back towards 8% next year. And so uh, as China gets integrated into the global capital markets, I wonder if the, if the RMB might be a better place when you think about the total return than the euro, which is still backed by negative interest rates and has some big political challenges, whether it's Brexit, uh, Poland-Hungary uh, vetoing, uh, blocking this, uh, the next year's budget. Uh, so, a lot of, so I don't know. I, I guess I, I like the idea that the high beta currencies, so that would be Aussie, Kiwi, uh, the the uh, stock, uh, Sweden, Norway, uh, maybe the Canadian dollar, among the majors, do better. They're more leveraged for growth. I, I wonder if uh, Canada, on one hand, might have, have to have an early election. You know, Trudeau runs this minority government. Minority governments have an average lifespan of about two years in Canada, and they're in the second half of theirs and meeting more resistance. Uh, and emerging markets, I'm still impressed with how well Mexico's doing. Uh, it's among the strongest currencies. Our T-bill in the U.S. pays about seven basis points. Mexico's four and a quarter. It's got strong worker remittances coming into Mexico, trade surplus, and uh, this, this high yield that's attracting portfolio flows. 
a lot of interesting stuff to, to drill in there. Mark, um, so certainly China was the front and center of the Trump administration. And, you know, and, and we go towards a Biden administration. Biden's saying he's going to look at he's not going to just remove tariffs right away. He's going to sort of see how uh, sort of allies want to come together and deal with China. How do you think the, the, the political sphere comes into this view on, on China? And because and, there's been all these actions to, say, restrict some investments recently on, on Chinese companies, um, either delistings of U.S. listings or banning these military financing companies that, that, that the executive order from Trump. How do you think about the, the capital flows under a Biden versus Trump administration here? Yeah, no, I think that's important. And I think that, uh, I guess for me, a couple of things. One, I'd say is it seems to me that, you know, even though it's, it's of course, as partisans, we have strong political convictions, strong uh, recognition of differences between Republicans and the Democrats. However, in foreign economic policy, I think they're much closer together. And I think that there is a bipartisan, I think you see this in comments from uh, both uh, former President Clinton and Obama, that when, when President Xi became president for life, that sort of marked a turning point in the U.S. attitude towards China. And when I mean U.S. attitude, I mean the political elite, both parties. And so I think that, uh, I think that the difference, I think, as, as you hinted at, was going to be more about tactics. I, I think uh, it's going to be important to watch these capital markets, but just because the U.S., may ban, uh, say, owning, uh, say, uh, today, the, uh, uh, I think it's the third largest oil company of China was sanctioned because they have military links. Uh, I don't think that would be enough in and of itself, given the mobility of capital uh, to, uh, to block China from becoming more integrated. I think what happens is U.S. investors will just uh, not participate in it. Do you see the sort of bonds? So far, the the equity investors have included, you know, like an MSCI um, and some of the other major index providers. Wisdom Tree has included more of the A shares in in markets. Uh, do you see the bonds is the the sort of next part of why the capital flows are going to start going to China? Yeah, exactly. Because because one of the things that will happen next year, but it was announced this year, is that I believe it's the uh, some other bond indexes. Are, have begun including more of China mainland, and China has adjusted some of its rules to make it easier. And that's why I think that ultimately China does allow or is allowing the RMB to strengthen because it knows that in order to be integrated into the global capital markets, people like you or I might buy Chinese stocks or bonds anticipating a total return. Given those macro fundamentals, what should the, should the stock market go up? A bond yield, be a, get attractive bond yields, and you have to have a view on the currency. And I think that if if they purposely devalue the currency or keep it artificially weak, then that will di- discourage global investors, global savers, and global savers like us buying into China now as China's trying to clean up their own like uh, imbalances, domestic imbalances between you know the high debt. You see. Several state-owned enterprises failed this year. And so I, I do think that the integration of both the stock and bond market is important. And, of course, uh, uh, bond markets tend to – international bond flows tend to be bigger than international equity flows. Yeah, we've had uh, some uh, currency – I've been having discussions with currency strategists who thinks – that you know, getting Chinese bonds is one of the best investments that people can have for their bond allocations, given the negative real returns you're having in U.S. ten years. The tips being negative real returns. You know, he's looking for more access to direct Chinese bonds to replace his U.S. bonds. So I think that's an interesting 
uh, interesting conversation there on, on sort of the capital flows to China. I, I want to come back to the developed euro uh, situation where you said Roach has this 30% view. How do you think about the euro? I mean, that as it keeps strengthening, sometimes you get the central bankers there getting worried about the, the pressures that's going to put on the European economy. What, where do you see the euro today? Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's true. You know, they, uh, last time the euro came close to this 120 level, uh, we had a flurry of comments from European officials uh, warning about strength and really it linkages how a currency strength is going to just exacerbate the deflationary pressures that Europe is facing. And I think that's been four months in a row now they've had negative CPI levels. So, so I, I, I sort of think about the euro like this that the uh, that the big dollar, the big euro decline began after, the, of course, its peak. You remember, it got to a dollar sixty back uh, in early part of the crisis, one sixty in uh, uh, July, I believe, of '08, and it's been trending lower, more or less, since. And so, what kind of levels should we be looking at on the upside? Well, by getting a, you know, we've been in this range, one sixteen, one twenty basically four months, and we broke out of it this week. And so what does this mean? That Where could we be going? And so I'm thinking that 125 is a reasonable level. That's the 2018 high. And that's not so far from where we've been. But, you know, it's funny when we think about valuation and equities, there's agreed-upon models to understand what a company is worth. People might disagree on what the appropriate model is, but there's a variety to choose from. And Maybe to a lesser extent, it's true in fixed income, but in currencies, it's really hard to get your hand around valuation. And so, of course, uh, economists have these purchasing power parity levels as as sort of the level that currencies often gravitate around the long run. And so I ask myself, what other level should currencies gravitate around in the long run? And of course, as someone following prices, it's a long run moving average. So I take a look at the, uh, I keep an eye on the 10-year moving average for the euro for the different currencies, 10 years, 120 months. And, uh, and I find that measures of purchasing power parity tend to be, that's like a good first approximation. And right now, it's coming in near current levels, around mm-hmm. 121. We haven't been above there, above that like kind of 10-year moving average since, the, uh, say, 2014, 20, early 2015. So I think we're, the 125, I think, is conservative. And I think that before this move is over, before this, say, this dollar's down move is over, I think that the euro will be back closer to 140. Really interesting. You know, I think, you know, always you think about when, when, when sentiment shifts one way or the other, you know, and it moves quickly. You know, I think the sentiment has definitely lined up for, for a weak dollar. So it's interesting to hear where, you know, the, the other side is. And, and uh, you know, it, it definitely, so 140 is a, is a high level is, is interesting. Uh, what about the yen? You know, the yen has been stuck. You know, it had peaked out, you know, in terms of weakening. It got down to 120 yen. Now we're at like 104. It doesn't seem to be doing much. It sort of, you know, ultimately has been this risk on, risk off type currency. Where do you say the yen is in, its, in, in that path also? Yeah, so the yen is harder for me to, uh, as an alternative. So I sort of see the euro as sort of like uh, the uncola, the non-dollar as the second biggest currency by various measures in the world. While the yen is still, uh, I, I find it to be uh, less less important in the world economy and less, uh, I mean, there's days where, you know, I, I try to keep uh, almost London hours here on the East Coast of the U.S. And I, I could be up sometimes in the morning and, and the foreign exchange market would be uh, 
eight, nine hours into the day. It is 24-hour day, and dollar yens moved a third of a yen. It's still not a, it's still not the kind of currency that I think that you have a, a broad based participation. So I, I sort of often find dollar yen to be stuck in trading ranges, and, re, and this is the problem I think with a lot of technical analysis and technical tools is that for the last couple of weeks we've been in a one less than a one percent range, say one hundred three sixty five, one hundred four sixty five, and when, when it seems to me when the dollar yen looks like it's trending, it's often just moving to a new trading range. So I, I tend to think that the uh, – so what this means, I think, is really is for foreign investors who are thinking about investing uh, in Japanese stocks, which maybe it's part of that rotation you were talking to with the professor about, that if we are shifting from a more of a growth orientation to value, if that's the shift that's taking place, which you know some people point to, then what's the, what's the, a, uh, what's the extreme value would be, would be Japanese stocks, which – we talk about us making new record highs and everything. Uh, Japan stocks have have uh, they peaked in, in the 90s, and the, in recent weeks, the Nikkei, one of the major benchmarks, has basically made it back to those kind of highs to the late 90s. And so maybe the foreigners do not look like they're participating that much, but the low the low volatility of dollar yen. I say it might be boring from a, spec, a currency speculator's point of view. It might be actually advantageous for the foreign investor who's trying to buy, who's thinking about buying Japanese stocks, uh, and uh, and not having to worry as much about the volatility of the currency as they might have in other places. No, it's interesting. We're talking with Mark Chandler, who's a managing director, chief market strategist at Bannockburn Global Forex. Uh, Mark, you know I like talking Japan. Uh, one of the things uh, we've been talked about is um, Warren Buffett coming into Japan. He's been one, you know, these ultimate value investors buying five of these companies there that are these sort of bigger enterprises have a lot of investments within them, but uh, sort of these trading companies, it's like a gateway to sort of venture capital and, and all sorts of business in Japan, but also sort of commodities. But he's done it without having any yen risk. Like he sort of made these hedges so that he could be neutral, the currency. Uh, and so I think it's interesting, you know, if you have a real global growth acceleration and Japan tends to be a cyclical set of the market, um, it, it's interesting that Japan is breaking out to these highs since 1991 and, and, uh, and, and the question will be, what about the currency? And uh, you know, I think if there's a global growth acceleration, maybe the yen has some some pressures, but we'll have to see. Yeah, I think that uh, you know, like the the interest in Japan. I think there's always a sort of like the, I hope that like one day European stocks outperform the U.S. again. I think that people get caught up on those kind of things. I think the same thing for Japan. That there's this hope that I think Japan, many Japanese companies sell so cheap to book value. That there's this hope that uh, like that uh, it's like there's, there's there's money to be taken from that to, to be able to like not just invest in it but actually to earn a good return, and I think we're going through one of those phases now. I, I worry though that on the on the on the exchange rate, Japanese officials seem still very sensitive to its movement. So while we were, while dollar yen had been holding above uh, roughly uh, 104, when it broke below it. In early November, both the Bank of Japan governor and the prime minister, the new prime minister, spoke about within the framework that the G7 and G20 liked to frame it, and that was that uh, about how excessive volatility uh, needed to be avoided. Right. And so it was a it was a low step on the escalation ladder, if you will, but the sensitivity of it. Uh, w- 
so early was a bit surprising. So we talked about some of the major markets here between China, Europe, Japan. You mentioned Mexico as an emerging market that, that you like. Any other places as you look around the world, the, the opportunities? Where, where, where do you see some of your clients? How do you see them, their interest in currency levels and what they're doing? You know, what, Maybe talk about the activities that you tend to see. Sure. So at Banneker, we advise small and medium-sized companies. And ironically, uh, they, they're, they're, they're where you would expect uh, people who are you know, modest small importers and exporters to be. And so Canada is probably the biggest. And Canada, actually, the Canadian dollar has had quite a good ride here, too. We're just making new, uh, new uh, uh, Canadian dollar highs for the year today. It turns out, uh, as Professor Siegel was talking about, how the U.S. employment data missed a little bit. Those, the job growth was a bit weaker than expected. But Canadian data, their jobs data also came out today. They had a number, uh, their jobs growth was uh, modest, but three times what economists expected. And so I, as a rule of thumb, I often think about Canada as say one tenth the size of the U.S. So their 60,000 job growth turned out to be really equivalent, more or less, you know, uh, to uh, about 600,000 in the U.S. And of course, we missed that terribly. But uh, I like the Canadian dollar, uh, and I think that a lot of our clients, have uh, have been you know be able to get on the right side of, of the Canadian dollar strength. Uh, our clients are after Canada, I'd say uh, the UK, and of course we're watching uh, this uh, this weekend especially the the uh, as the trade talks come down to the wire. A lot of our companies would use the UK uh, build or or use it as an export platform uh, to penetrate the rest of Europe. And if there's not a good trade agreement. Uh, you know, we've been, uh, besides hedging the exact currency risk, we're also thinking more strategically about supply chains. And I'd say Ireland is a, uh, is a favorite, uh, probably go-to uh, place for people who are needing to change supply chains towards uh, out of the U.K., Interesting. So as you think about going forward into into next year, um, and I guess what are the major themes that you'll be watching as we think about how do how do all these markets come together and, and currencies being one of the biggest markets, what are the, the most important drivers of these currency rates that you'll be you'll be watching for? Yeah, that's a good question. I you know, I I'd say there's one meme that seems to be uh it percolates, you know, uh every so often and I think it's percolating now again, and that is uh rising inflation. Fears, expectations, or something along those lines—part uh, of the uh, reflation story. But so I'd say inf- inflation and the fears about, around inflation uh, are, are are important thing, especially as you know as we turn into year. And secondly, I think that I think you, you had it before when you were asking about like Biden and China. I think that the whole world is is watching not just on China Biden relationship, but broadly. Uh, what does it mean to say the U.S. is back? What does it mean to be the internationalist? Uh, you know, uh, uh, while, while everybody wants to give Biden a, uh, a sort of a, a bit of a honeymoon period and, and this kind of relief that we saw from some of our friends and allies about uh, an internationalist, an Atlanticist back in the White House, uh, the Europeans went forward with their tariffs uh, and uh, WTO approved on uh, the U.S. for violating, uh, for, you know, illegal subsidizing Boeing. And uh, Germany has seems to be on the verge of announcing that they found a way out of U.S. sanctions for the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Apparently they found, a, you know, the Swiss backed out of it. And I think they found uh, a few Russian ships that could complete it. It'll take them longer. 
But uh, they're still for going ahead with these issues, which here, too, just like in China, I think there's some bipartisan. Uh, the U.S. is more bipartisan on some of these issues than maybe it might look like, uh, you know, just reading the headlines of newspapers. So I think that the inflation story, uh, how the U.S. reemerges, the issue, they say the, the first 100 days of Biden, and then I think the uh, broader, investment, broader investment climate shaped by progress with the COVID vaccine. Well, Mark, this has been been a fun conversation as always. Any closing thoughts or any place people should look for staying up, up to date with your views? Well, th- thanks. Uh, I, I keep a, uh, a macro blog on Mark to Market. That's Mark with a C. Uh, but, uh, no, I, I think that it's, a, uh, it's been a tough year for everybody. I think uh, many of us, including myself, are just amazed by the kind of returns that have happened in the stock market. And even... Even in the recent weeks, how the stock market's broadened out to include, I mean, I'm watching the Russell 2000 as a broad measure. So I, I think that uh, it's, it's, the, it's the non-economic challenges that seem to be more serious. Well, Mark, thanks for being with us on the program again. Have a good rest of the 2020, and we'll chat with you again in the new year. Thank you. Good luck to everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 